to be joined today on 14th and G by Congressman Dr. Michael Burgess. Uh, Dr. Burgess represents the Texas 26th, just north of Dallas-Fort Worth. He's a senior member of the Energy and Commerce Committee, where he's ranking member of the Health Subcommittee. He's also the most senior medical doctor in the House of Representatives. Dr. Burgess, welcome to 14th and G. Well, pleasure to be here. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I wanted to start today with uh, what you're seeing on the ground uh, back in Texas regarding COVID-19. Uh, yours is one of a number of states that is seeing a rise in cases. Uh, we heard from Governor Abbott this week that stricter measures could be reimposed. Are we going back to a shelter-in-place situation? Oh, no, absolutely not. Look, Texas, just like the country, I mean, Texas is a big state. What is going on in the part of the state that I represent is different from, from other parts. I'm kind of a mix between rural, uh, urban and rural. The part of the state that has my uh, really has my attention right now is down along the southern border of the lower Rio Grande Valley sector, talking to some doctors down there at the end of last week. Community spread seems to be a uh, much more of a feature, and that is, of course, a great concern. When things started to open back up, I was concerned about uh, hot spots developing. We've all seen the congregate living facilities, nursing homes, extended care facilities, and how those are vulnerable. Community spread is a little bit more difficult to deal with, but at the same time, the other lesson I think we've learned from all of this is completely shutting down the economy is not a good idea. And there is some collateral damage from doing that that actually extracts a pretty hefty toll on public health as well. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, bar barring people from making a living uh, is, is probably one of the most extreme measures uh, the government can take to deal with anything, much less a health crisis. One of the methods that's been proposed for avoiding uh, going back to shelter in place uh, is, is involves the use of technology and specifically track and trace apps on cell phones that would alert people when they may have been exposed. I think South Korea probably most prominently seems to have used track and trace to great effect. You know, but that technology obviously carries concerns around data privacy and in a country like the United States that's pretty much founded on the distrust of government. Uh, can track and trace technology be used effectively here, do you think? I think so. I think it has to be, I mean, you've got to be absolutely transparent about uh, what people are signing up for when they when they sign up to, uh, for, for example, for an app uh, that would provide them some protection from, from contact tracing. I think also what happens to the data after the after it's been collected is, is also going to be important to people as well. Look, I saw early in this, way, be, way before things uh, really got overheated in this country about the, the viral infection, I remember someone coming into my office and showing me what uh, uh, their data analytics from South Carolina, uh, I'm sorry, South Korea exposed for them. And it was right around the time there was a, a hotspot in, in South Korea, a church, where there had been someone who was infected and there was a great concern that this would be a super spreader phenomenon. And actually that person had data for everyone who was in that church and where they were at six hours, 12 hours and 24 hours afterwards. So it's a pretty powerful, as far as just the data analytics, it was a pretty powerful program that, that they had. But it also crossed my mind that that's 
that's going to be a much harder sell in this country. I don't know that people are actually going to be interested in someone being able to know where they are at a given point in time and then where they are six hours later. But, but look, even taking a step further back, contact tracing or, or public health notification of uh, a certain infectious diseases, that's really not new. I mean, that goes back way over 100 years in our country. That's one of the ways that our country used to control a disease like tuberculosis. When I was in medical practice, there were certain things that I had to report to the State Department on Health, not to the Federal Department on Health, but the State Department on Health. And I think that's another important point. It does need to be kept it does need to be kept local, and people do, as you point out, have have distrust of the uh, of, of large federal large federal data banks. From the standpoint of what happens with the contact information, leads us to uh, another part of the discussion and something that was really in, in pretty far advanced discussion before this virus kind of took over everyone's uh, thought processes. But what happens as far as privacy and does right. there need to be a federal standard for, for privacy in this country? My experience as the chairman of the Subcommittee on Commerce, Manufacturing and Trade in, uh, two Congresses ago, we did and got through committee a data breach notification bill. Leadership never brought it up on the floor, but it was as far as we'd ever gotten with that type of concept. And when I look at what worked to get that through a pretty divided committee at the time, I think a lot of those same principles could be applicable to to, to privacy legislation and, and the privacy standard. And, but there was resistance to doing it. You also have a situation where individual states were deciding for themselves, well, this is what we're going to do. And you something as ubiquitous as the internet in this country, you can't have a patchwork of state laws that are sort of governing where you do, where you can and where you can't do things. So I think privacy legislation, again, very similar, uh, is going to require that same type of federal overlay where, where there it is appropriate. In fact, uh, even I think the argument was made during our, uh, our, our hearings leading up to that, that it was the internet that the founding fathers had in mind when they created the Commerce Clause, because they knew that you would want to be able to, to uh, sell and trade across state borders in, in order for the country to thrive in commerce. Partly tongue-in-cheek there, but when you stop and think about it, it, it actually it makes sense in a country like ours that you not have a completely different set of laws in one state, uh, uh, right next door to a state that uh, is is that has an entirely different approach. Well, Dr. Burgess, you really you hit on the sort of the crux of the debate. Uh, we've spent numerous congresses on the privacy issue. It seems to break down. It seems to stall out over this uh, federal preemption of, of the federal standard ruling. Most prominently, you've got California with CCPA. You've got uh, the EU with GDPR as their privacy standard, and, and, and they're the default privacy standards for, uh, for a lot of the American companies that operate internationally. But on the other side, what Democrats seem to want out of this is, uh, is a private right of action. And, and obviously, I think with the time left in the 116th Congress, we're, we're, we're not likely to get to that fulsome uh, data privacy legislation. But 
you know, pr particular to breaking down on that preemption versus liability debate, uh, do you see hope for, for getting a, a federal privacy law in the near term? It uh, would depend on how you define near term, but yes, I do have hope. I, I agree with you that the useful daylight that we have left in the 116th Congress, part of it's going to be taken up with worrying about the virus, part of it's going to be taken up with a political year. Um, so it's hard to see the bandwidth there to, to deliver something of that magnitude. Uh, don't forget, uh, I, I don't like it when we do this, but I personally don't like it when we do things in uh, lame duck sessions. But some pretty big things have happened in lame duck sessions, things like the Cures for the 21st Century that uh, we worked for two Congresses to try to get passed, ultimately passed just sort of in the waning, uh, the waning moments of the Obama administration uh, prior to, to that Congress expiring. So it is possible to do something uh, that, you know, that's one way to sort of divorce it from the, from the heated po politics of the moment. I, again, I personally don't like that because I believe we all ought to say what we're for. And before that, when we put our names on the ballot and people ought to know what we're for when they, when they pull the lever next to our name. So doing things like postponing all of the funding for government until a lame duck session after the election day has always bothered me because it, it somehow seems less than honest. But for something as complicated as this, perhaps there would be hope. If it does not happen this Congress, I look, I think next Congress, we just has to be a, a, an absolute determinative goal that we are going to get that done. When Fred Upton asked me to be chairman of Commerce, Manufacturing and Trade at the beginning of the 114th Congress, I mean, the charge there was to get that data breach notification bill through the committee and get it ready for floor action. And I committed to Fred that I would do that in the first quarter of the year. Didn't quite make that. It, it actually slipped a little bit into the, I think, into the month of April before it finally f passed full committee. But we tried to uh, hew to that timeline fairly strictly. And I think the onus on the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee at the beginning of the next Congress, if this has not been solved, because you're right, you default to the, to, you know, what is the, the lowest common denominator, whether that uh, be a state AG in, in California or Minnesota or somewhere else, as Congress just absolutely relinquishes its authority and, and gives it over to uh, an aggressive attorney general, uh, regardless of where they are. So it is incumbent upon us to get this done. And if it doesn't happen with, we don't have enough oxygen in the room to, to finish it in this Congress, uh, in a democratically controlled Congress, a democratically controlled House. My expectation is we'll have a Republican controlled House in the next Congress. And uh, boy, that would be my commitment that it, yeah, all hands on deck, we've got to get this done. Hope springs eternal. Of course, uh, the, the tech sector uh, is involved in a lot of other issues and how Americans use technology, not only how they conduct commerce using technology, but how they, how they get their news and share information. Uh, one of the big debates around that involves Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The Department of Justice has announced its own review of Section 230 applicability, shielding uh, large technology platforms from liability over the content posted by users. Uh, the president's made his views very well known on Section 230. Do you see any action in the Congress? Uh, how do you view that issue for uh, for, for the large uh, technology platforms? 
Um, well, of course, we do have a hearing on that even uh, today in the Energy and Commerce Committee. It is, and this is one of those things that doesn't cleave as uh, as neatly along party lines. And I've certainly heard from people back home in the district on on both sides of this issue. Folks will look at what happened to the Federalist Society for the difficulty they got into with the online platform for not uh, policing their comments section aggressively enough. But these are the same information platforms that have protections under Section 230 so that they don't have to police their comments section of their platforms. So it does seem a, a little bit of a double standard. And I guess that's what's what's gotten everyone's attention. <clears throat> I think that's what got the DOJ's attention and the president's attention at the same time. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, I spent a good deal of time on the telephone the other day with one of the principal drivers of the original Section 230 back in the 1990s. You know, I talked earlier about being technology neutral. I mean, my, my goodness, in the 1990s, you can think about that in 96, 97, 98, trying to predict what is the technology that will be being used 25 years later is, 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 is impossible. And yet, Section 230, and this is where uh, when, when people talk about, well, we, want, we need to revisit this or we need to have new laws surrounding this, Section 230 allowed us, I think, my opinion, it allowed us to have the internet that we enjoy today. So anything that happens there must be done with that in mind. And, and I remember my predecessor, very clearly I remember my predecessor, I went down to a lecture that Leader Army gave one afternoon. I'm just a regular guy, doctor practicing medicine in my community, and I wanted to hear what uh, the majority leader had to say. And it was talking about the internet and e-commerce. And uh, I, I very clearly remember Leader Army saying that, look, the Congress does not understand the internet. It doesn't understand why the, and of course, at that time, we were enjoying a pretty good economy with, uh, with all of the e-commerce that had uh, erupted around the internet. He said, if Congress doesn't understand something, the first thing they're going to try to do is tax it. And the next thing is regulate it. And either one of those things will absolutely destroy <laughs> what we've got going on. So we mustn't let that happen. So I sort of came to Congress with the mindset of, you don't want to tax the internet, really don't want to regulate the internet. It's working, leave it alone. So I, I do come at it from that perspective. The, the old Bob Dylan line that really is applicable here, if you want to live outside the law, you've got to be honest. And that's <laughs> really, I guess, what we depend upon is we, we do depend upon that base level of, of honesty, of civility. Hard to legislate that if, if, if people are going to wantonly walk away from it. Right. Dr. Burgess, one of the other great convergences of, of technology in this pandemic, and it seems like it seems like this has accelerated uh, so many trends that were already underway. But wondering specifically your view uh, on technology and the use of telehealth services during the pandemic. Are you seeing increasing use? I'm, I'm wondering what, what we're learning here uh, about the ability to use telehealth to provide uh, to provide medical services both in a time where folks are m much more wary of, of accessing the healthcare sector in person, but you know, beyond that, when, uh, when uh, life returns somewhat to normal. Um, telehealth has undergone exponential growth in a very condensed timeline. And look, here's the, here's the quick answer. We're not going back. And the reason we're not going back is because consumers' patients have figured this out and they like it. 
I, I forget what the exact figures are, but we've gone from uh, the number of visits being in the tens of thousands to well over a million in, in again, just a, a month, month and a half, two months time. The, on the agency side, on the, on the bureaucratic side, there's going to have to be some catch up or there had to be some catch up with the uh, how are those visits reimbursed? Do we value those the same as we value a face-to-face -face visit? Turns out that that's probably not a bad idea. Look, I remember the day very clearly back in the 1980s when I found that there was a code that I could submit for doing a telephone consultation at night. Uh, and I thought, great, I'm going to get paid for all those phone calls I have to answer after hours. <laughs> and so I submitted all of those charges uh, with that code. And my uh, the lady in charge of the billing office came to see me one afternoon and said, I wish you'd stop doing this. It makes a lot of work for my folks up front. And, and this never gets paid. So you're just wasting everyone's time. Oh, wow. So I was chastised and, and, uh, and, and slunk away from that. But so I'm actually... As individually, I'm happy to see that day that, that that day has arrived, and that in fact CMS has recognized that a telephonic visit certainly is of value and can be reimbursed. So that's uh, in my way, that's a in, in my mind, that's a that's a positive step forward. But here's the big deal: I mean, patients have figured it out. You mean I can get this taken care of? and I don't have to hire a babysitter, and I don't have to come down and pay your parking garage, uh, and I can, still get, uh, I can still get this taken care of. That's the part of the equation that patients have figured out. And again, it would be very, very difficult to go, to go back. And I also know there are some things you simply can't phone in. There are some things you are, that are going to require that face-to-face -face or that hands-on uh, that, that you only get from an in-person visit. And it is going to be, my opinion, it is going to be the, uh, I mean, that's, that's going to be part of practicing clinical medicine. That's going to be knowing when that is okay and when it is not. That's going to become part of the compendium of what is a good, what is a good doctor, what is a good clinician. But with that day is, has happened already and it's, it's here to stay, the rest of us are going to have to figure out actually how we deal with that, whether that means reimbursement, whether that means running our medical practice, whether that means uh, being a good patient. We are all in the process of changing our lives to fit that paradigm because it's here. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, as we look towards uh, further legislation dealing with the pandemic, seems right now the ball uh, is in the Senate's court, debates centered around liability protections for businesses versus money to states and localities. Wondering how you see this play out. Uh, is there more and, and more specific to the COVID response there is further legislation. What should the federal government be doing specific to help providers with funding and lab testing and issues like that? Well, there's there's a couple of basics, and, and what is what is uh, the principal basic for me right now is that there is no way that the federal government can print or electronically manufacture the number of dollars that would be required to replace the entirety of the United States economy for a year. It just can't, it's a physical impossibility. So number one is obviously we do have to let people get back to work. And the notion that what happened in the first three responses, understandable, uh, new situation, never happened before, people were hurting, needed the help, and it was appropriate to provide the help. But now armed with the knowledge that uh, that we all have now. We saw what happened with the May jobs report with just opening up a portion of the country that, that 
the economy kind of came roaring back. And what happened with retail sales the month of May, the economy came came roaring back. So to the degree that that needs to be allowed to happen, uh, albeit safely, but that needs to happen. And that's probably principle number one, that a large package like the House passed stalled in the Senate, but that $3 trillion HEROES Act is at this point, it, it, it is an overreach. But having said that, are there parts that we should consider? Here, here's the thing, and this is what's been so frustrating to me sitting on a, and I don't want to sound like a whiny authorizer, but we've done all of the governing this year as emergency supplemental appropriations. No input from authorizing committees. So, for example, no input from the Energy and Commerce Committee on on any of these big things we've done, whether they've been in energy, whether they've been in tech, whether they've been in healthcare. We didn't look at it. We didn't decide. We didn't provide any guidance, guardrails, or guideposts. And as a consequence, you've got to provide a relief fund that's big and hasn't gone out to the people that ostensibly need it because we were so uh, uh, deficit in our ability to tell the agency what congressional intent was. So we sent the money over to the agency, said, do something good with it. And if you get it wrong, we do bear in mind, we've convened five investigatory panels to come after you and tell you how bad you are if you don't do it correctly. So the agencies are understandably a, a, a little bit timid about uh, about getting these dollars out there because they don't want to then be called to account. and. And, uh, and people are concerned about accepting because they don't want to then undergo a take the money, cash the check, and then find that they've had a, been subject to a clawback and they have to give the money back. What we need to do from a congressional level, I think, is get back to basics. We're an authorizing committee, study the situation, whether again, whether it be in energy, whether it be in tech, whether it be in healthcare, study the situation and decide what is necessary, where where the uh, applicability of, of any help might be. Uh, other committees should also do their work in, in education. It's certainly a sort of a multi-jurisdictional issue. How do you help state and local governments? How do you make sure that we're not simply facilitating a state that has overspent and needs help on that basis versus a state that is truly in crisis because of the damage inflicted by this viral illness and what is an appropriate congressional response, what is appropriate con- congressional help to that state, and further, how do we ensure that the money that goes to the state capital actually gets to the county seats and the municipal bodies underneath that jurisdiction where where the help is really needed on the ground. We didn't do a good job of that. And when the original CARES Act passed, uh, I guess it was March 27th, we put $150 billion for state and local governments, but not really a lot of the parameters about how that was to be, how that was to be handled. Uh, and the parameters that we provided were, were actually perhaps even more injurious than no, no parameters at all. Jurisdictions had to be uh, over 500,000 people in order to receive a portion of the funding. Well, not in the district that I represent, but not too far away, you've got a city of 490,000 people that uh, was sort of feeling left out in the entire exchange and quite vocal about it and quite understandable. So we need to do a better job as the Congress of deciding how we are going to make sure that those dollars that are being appropriated to help state and local governments to make sure that they get to where they are supposed to be and not just covering a state's deficit from problems that existed 
prior to the, to, the, to the viral infection happening. But that's where I see a lot of the work that we could be doing for the balance of this year. And then don't forget, uh, fiscal year ends September 30th. There's uh, all of the government, the departments of government need to be funded before September 30th, or we're in big trouble with an appropriations lapse. And no one wants to see a government shutdown come on top of the already economic devastation that the virus has caused. Well, Dr. Burgess, let's end on an even more hopeful note. Uh, <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Rangers baseball, Longhorns, Cowboys, uh, sports are slowly coming back to life. Uh, what are you most looking forward to in the months ahead? I think my greatest hope is that just normalcy at all levels begins to get reestablished. I'll tell you one other hopeful, and this is a, this is kind of a wild card, but I've got a group back in the district at one of my universities uh, and in conjunction with a private company that's working on a breathalyzer test for coronavirus. Now, when I stop and think about it for a minute, we all say that if we had the, the proper data and the proper testing, we'd be able to, what if you could do a quick breathalyzer test before going into a baseball game or going into a sports venue? And then know that everyone else who was in there had been similarly screened and you weren't going to be sitting next to someone who was carrying a deadly disease that might be just in its silent phase. Uh, I, I, I like the promise of that type of technology. I don't know if they've worked through all the bugs that they've, that they've had to work through, but that is the type of American ingenuity. That's the type of American innovation that is going to get us out of this. So uh, whether it be on the testing front or the vaccine front, I'm just emerging from this viral pause that we've all been through with a renewed uh, exuberance and, in fact, in awe of American innovation, because that is, after all, what's going to get us through. I couldn't agree more. America will find a way. Congressman Dr. Michael Burgess, thank you so much for joining me today on 14th and G. Happy to do it. Anytime. Thank you.